You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. What's the balance between being a confident leader and one who holds your convictions and yet one who can have conversations with neighbors and conversations with people who don't share exactly the same convictions. How do we avoid being malleable, because that's not good in leadership, without being off-putting? How do we build partnerships with people who have similar ends in mind, even if not the very same ends? How do we say, no, I'm not gonna be part of that, even if, yes, I can join you this far? Some of these are the questions that today's guest, Dr. Justin Gibney, helps walk us through. Dr. Gibney is the author, along with Michael Ware and Chris Butler, of Compassion and Conviction. It's the AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement, published by InterVarsity Press. And we also have a great co-host today. Dr. Colleen Durr, president of Wesley Seminary, is joining us to help flesh out some of Justin's ideas in this book. In today's conversation, you're going to hear Justin share his leadership wisdom about avoiding malleability and about avoiding overconfidence how we reject simply defending our ideology to pursuing truth, how we recognize that Jesus is one who modeled for us great kinds of engagement and yet did so in a perfectly faithful life. You're gonna hear Dr. Gibney encourage leaders to take some hits if they're going to stand for what's true and compassionate all at once. If you are a pastor and working in spiritual leadership if you are one who has a conviction to see the good news of jesus make an impact in the world right around you and in so doing you also want to build friendships with real people with whom you are living and around whom you are sharing a public life today's episode is for you stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the podcast we are wesley and you belong here My name is Victoria Borum, and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti, and I am Wesley. My name is Chris, and guess what? I am Wesley. Hi, I'm Tina Schappett, and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr, and I belong here. You belong here too, because we are Wesley. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Dr. Durr, Dr. Gibney. I'm delighted to have you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yes, and thank you, Aaron, for uh, letting me join in the conversation today as well. Well, and it is an important conversation, and it's one that we're seemingly having in any number of contexts, dinner tables, social media, text messages with friends, meme wars, maybe, right? How do we, as Christians, engage in a faithful civic life? And so, uh, Justin, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here because this is the work that you've been doing for, for years now, right? This is not something that's brand new to you. You've been thinking, reflecting, writing, working, active in this sphere. So let me th- get things started. Everybody's listening in. Today's conversation is about being Christians in the public space of political life. Justin, one of the things that you lay out in your book is you say Christians should be engaged in the political life, but this engagement must always be second to worship, evangelism, fellowship, right? The faithful life, the, the life of, of our religious commitments in the church. Uh, one of the dangers that I, I sometimes see, and maybe you've seen it as well, or maybe seen it maybe a little bit differently, or maybe you see it just the way I see it, is that people want to worship and fellowship often even only 
with those who agree with their politics, right? It's this kind of way of, of getting this backwards, right? They, they put the politics first because that's what dictates who they will even fellowship with and who they will converse with. Do you see this happening in the various places that you're active? And if you do, how do we keep our political engagement subordinated to our fellowship in Christ? Yeah, I see it happening all the time. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's a matter of kind of being in our comfort zones. It's a matter of, in, 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 to some extent, having a, a disordered understanding of just kind of where our lives are at. Um, again, I think that worship, that evangelism, that relationship with God and with the church has to come before uh, anything that has to do with something political. And, and this is coming from somebody who talks about politics and the inter- intersection between faith and politics all the time. But I understand that politics isn't an ultimate thing. And to allow that to be what separates the church, to allow that to be a divide in the church is just really unfortunate. If you look at Jesus and look at his examples of who he was uh, engaging, whether whether it be the publican or, or, or others, there wasn't this divide based on, you know, would we vote for the same person or would we support the same policy? Uh, there, there even were instances where surely he disagreed with some of the things the publicans and others were doing. But that wasn't the question that uh, decided whether or not he was going to engage them on a, on a faith level or an interpersonal level. And so Christians have to do a better job of not being so kind of caught up in our, our party or ideological tribe that we're willing to exclude other believers and, and, and really, it, in, in some cases, have a contempt for other believers based mm. on that. I want to take a step back. I really think that I want to overhear on this conversation. So, Dr. Durr, I'm glad that you're with us. Let me turn th- things over to you for a little bit. Yes, thanks, Aaron. Justin, talk to us about leadership. Um, our goal is to, to raise up a population of student uh, seminarians who see themselves as pastors, ministers in the public square, being public theologians. And the way in Compassion and Conviction, your, your book, you talk about bringing these two things together and the tension that exists. So talk to us about how, as a leader, we live into this tension, and especially when we are living under the pressure and living in perhaps the pressure cooker that we all have been, especially in the past year. Yeah, I, I think as, as, as someone who's a leader, someone who has influence among others, I mean, first, obviously, you, you got to know the word. You got you have to know what you believe. And that's what the conviction side comes into it. You have to be confident about uh, what you what you believe. Too often we see people kind of go into the public square and whether they're in the political space or academia. Right. There just isn't that confidence in what they believe. And so they become very malleable. And it's a bad thing when you're you're leading folks in the church, but you're very malleable when it comes to what's going on in secular society. That's that's not a good thing. So you want to be confident in, in your convictions, but you also don't want to be legalistic, right? You also don't want to become self-righteous. You want to make sure that there's compassion and that you're thoughtful uh, and that you're, you know, that, that in understanding the Bible, that you understand the, the whole counsel of God and not just parts of it, not just the, um, you know, more dogmatic parts, but also, you know, ways that we should treat our neighbors and, and interact with others. And so I think it's in being a leader, it is very important to provide people and be able to articulate a framework for those in- interactions as you influence them, but also make trying to do your best to make sure that you're not unduly influenced by things outside of the church that could be harmful or that could mislead people. So it's, it, it's something that we always have to be vigilant about, because if, if you're too confident that you're getting it perfectly, then you, you're probably getting something wrong. And I think the gospel shows us that over and over again. 
but we should have a level of confidence and we should have uh, be consistent. I mean, consistency is really important about that. We don't, none of us always get it right. I mean, I think I had to uh, apologize not too long ago for something that I, I don't think it was terrible that I said, but something that I could have said better uh, on social media. That happens too. But we should try our best to be consistent in showing that compassion and conviction as we engage uh, others. That's so critical at this moment in time to be able to be firmly grounded in what we believe. And it is so challenging in social media for people to see that in us. Um, and now that we've gone to virtual everything, we've taken so much of that, the heart of ourselves, almost out of the equation. How have you seen it worked out well in which people can engage in people who disagree sharply over issues, political issues, but how they can come together with this deeply grounded conviction, but incredibly compassionate? Yeah, I would say that usually does isn't going to happen on social media. That's not the best medium for that. It usually happens best when there's an opportunity to build relationship, to hear people out, to understand that everybody has a testimony. Everybody has been through certain things and has uh, and they have reasons for why they see things the way they see them. But then also with the understanding that somebody you can disagree with someone and they can be very wrong on an issue, but then they could also have something to teach you. Uh, that they could also have something that you you can learn from. I think too often when it's the issue we really, really care about, if somebody gets that issue wrong, there's no use for them. They must get everything else wrong. And I tell this to young people all the time, even if it's someone in your family, let's say there's someone in your family that gets race really wrong, like they're just abrasive and wrong when it comes to race. It doesn't mean they're wrong about everything else. And so don't fall into that the idea that because somebody gets something wrong, they have nothing to teach you. The other thing is, making sure that we're going into those conversations with a, um, I think, a spirit of self-examination, being willing to admit that we're wrong. I think sometimes we we go into those conversations wanting to leave them faultless, but none of us are faultless. And, and no one went to Jesus with their their narrative completely intact and feeling and feeling faultless. We need to be able to go into those conversations, not with a posture of self-defense, but really being willing to examine ourselves. And you say, you know what? I, I am wrong on that. I need to do better. Because if we're all protecting ourselves and thinking we can walk away feeling faultless, then we just don't make any ground because we think giving an inch to the other side means that they win. And within the body, that certainly can't be the way that we communicate. Yeah, absolutely. This really calls for a posture of humility, doesn't it? And a generosity of spirit. It seems like we've lost that in the, in the public forum both humility and a generosity of spirit, this bringing to every conversation an expectation of the best of a person. Uh, my father used to say, every man, uh, every man is better than a single moment and that kind of posture. So how do we bring that uh, into conversations in the public square in a way that glorifies Christ and that we don't look like we're settling. That's one thing we get accused of all the time. We're we're willing to engage the conversation, uh, and that means, oh, you've already given up some of your convictions. You've you've already forfeited some of your beliefs. How do you respond to that? Yeah, you don't forfeit anything by seeking to understand. Uh, you You don't forfeit anything by admitting that you got something wrong. I think you actually gain something. You You gain credibility and you gain a level of understanding. We, again, too often walk into these conversations with these ironclad narratives. 
And we want to make sure that these narratives are completely intact when we walk away. The sad thing is, and the truth of, of the matter is, many times these ironclad narratives that we get from our ideological tribes or even from within some of our churches are fictional, right? There's a lot of fiction that goes into that. They, they may flatter us, but it's not the whole truth. And that's why we protect them the, the way that we do, because a lot of them can't stand up to scrutiny, can't stand up to biblical scrutiny, can't stand up to any level of self uh, of examination. And so we guard these narratives uh, as, as closely as we can, because we're afraid that, they, that they're going to fall apart. And that's just not, you know, the Christian posture. I think you said it perfectly, Dr. Durr, when you say, look, it has to be a level of humility, a level, of, you know, the understanding that but for God's grace, we would be in a lot of different positions, uh, too. And in, unless we can have conversations with people with that understanding, willing to be corrected if necessary, then those conversations just don't go very far when both sides are protecting these at least partially false narratives that we think make us look good, but nobody really believes them outside of our, our uh, group. No, that's really helpful. Thank you for that. At Wesley, we talk a lot about the language of um, training Christian leaders uh, to engage in missional ministry locally and globally. My team have heard that many, many times and it's literally on the walls <laughs> in the seminary. And we talk about to be missional means to find mission partners who aren't always people of faith that are mission partners, what Rick Warren calls persons of peace, people who agree with you about single issues. How do, can Christian leaders, and, and you talk about this when you reference Francis Schaefer in the, in the book, how can Christian leaders form partnerships with non-Christians for the common good? And how do we walk that path in this moment in time, especially? Yeah, I think as, as leaders, we're remiss if we don't form some of those partnerships, because then that means we don't even get a chance to evangelize. Right. But we, we talk about this pretty deeply in the book. It first starts with, again, knowing who you are, being confident in what you because it can be dang, dangerous to engage others and walk into different spaces when you're not sure about what you believe or, or who, who you are. And so I think it's very important to have a level of confidence. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to say, OK, when it comes to this particular group that I'm engaging this is what we agree on. This is where our beliefs overlap. And here's where they diverge. And too often people don't take the time to do the research or whatever it takes to understand those differences. And especially when you're talking about, well, I should say recently, I've seen it quite a bit when it comes to the justice conversation and joining secular groups. I think that can, you know, we can do that uh, in a healthy way, but it's not healthy when we engage secular organizations and don't have a firm grasp on who we are and what we're not going to do. And where there's a divergence in our beliefs and, and be willing to stand up and say, no, that's not who I am. That's not what I came here to do. And so we have to be very clear on the objectives, very clear on our beliefs, but then understand that, that common grace allows us to work with non-believers. It allows non-believers, like we saw in the civil rights movement and, and abolition and other spaces, there are non-believers who can do work that is towards, you know, God's ends. And so we, we shouldn't be afraid of having those conversations. You mentioned Francis Schaefer, you know, we're talking about co-belligerence, the understanding that we can do some things together, even if we're not doing it for the same reason or completely to the same end, that doesn't mean we can't have those partnerships. And I think interacting with people outside of Christian spaces is important for that reason. But again, also for the ability to evangelize, even if you're not uh, obviously throwing Bibles at people's heads, the way that you engage, the way that you love people and the way that you uh, interact in general goes a long way in, in how people view the faith. 
this really sounds like a call for the church to be the one reaching across the aisle to use political language and being the one to initiate the reaching out, the forging of these relationships. And of course, one of the significant divides in the U.S. is regarding race, even within the church. That's not unique to uh, culture and political life. How can uh, Christian leaders be leaders in overcoming the racial divide? And what does it look like for us to reach out to forge these relationships for that end? What are some, in in general, and then if you have some specific examples of how you've seen it happen. Yeah. I think if you're going to lead in the race conversation, the first thing you have to be willing to do is number one, take some hits because everybody's not going to be ready for that conversation. And if you're not really willing to take some hits, if you think it's going to be an easy ride, you're most likely uh, wrong about that. The other thing you have to do is is be willing to give the real history. Too often we deal in a romanticized American history. And when you bring up the real things, people start to to get upset and, and, you know, um, and you have to be ready for that. But, you know, if you're going to engage race, you need to do it with an understanding of what 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 has really happened in America, because otherwise you don't understand the divide. Otherwise, you don't understand the prologue that led us to where we are right now. So I think it starts with that education. I used to assume that people understood America's racial history. The truth is many people don't. I mean, many people have been in a culture or in groups where nobody, you know, nobody wanted to kind of, again, break the narrative that, you know, America was exceptional in an unqualified way. And there are certainly certainly things that America does exceptionally. And there's things that in our past that are not exceptional in any good in any good way. We need to be humble enough to accept that. So that's the first step. Be willing to under and be willing to have somebody from another race be honest with you with you about that history. And then I think you have to start building relationships. You have to start listening to people, building relationships. And if you really want to go, I think where the rubber meets the road and and where you really see progress is not just through fellowship, although that's important, um, not just kind of like through the, the kumbaya moments, but being willing to advocate and to share resources in that space. Mm. I think where we fall short oftentimes is we're willing to say the nice things. We're willing to, to, to hold hands and, and hug one another. But when our self-interest seems to be, or when our self-interest seems to be uh, in the way, or when our, you know, there's something that we have to give of ourselves, we're more hesitant to do that. And so I think when it comes to advocacy, when it comes to sharing resources, that's really tells the tale because we know, I mean, first John three says, look, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ died for us. What that tells me is that love is about self-sacrifice. And if you're not willing to sacrifice for people, sometimes, especially with a history like this country, it's hard for them to see that you actually do love them. That's fantastic. And I, I think so many of us are fearful to wade into that space, fearful of looking foolish, fearful of causing more offense. Yeah, And, and I think I, I do understand that because the, I think, you can get self-righteousness on both sides. And so for people who, you know, who may, may be in the more minority space, you got to have a level of grace. You got to let people, people aren't going to get their wording right all the time. They're not going to say it perfectly. Uh, that's not what this is about. It's about the orientation of people's hearts. Uh, and if you see somebody trying, I think we all, God asked something of all of us. Uh, even, you know, we see this in the Bible, even when the, the Hebrews are, are, are liberated, he immediately is asking something of them. So in, in this conversation, while I do believe that uh, majority Christians do carry a very heavy burden just because of uh, 
you know, the power dynamics and the history. Nobody comes into this conversation without something being asked of them in a real way. We have to always keep that in mind. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm going to have one final question that I know Aaron has follow-up questions as well. I, the book was published, I think, around July. And how writing books go, you probably finished writing it maybe six months prior to that. Maybe not. Maybe you had a quicker turnaround. Um, but often there's a lag time between writing and publishing. So given what we now know about the reality of life, especially reality of life in America, since July 2020, but maybe even since you first wrote the book, what would you add to it or say differently in, in light of where we find ourselves today? You know, generally, as far as concepts, I don't know that I would add too much at all. I think what we've tried to do is give Christians a framework. And I think that entire framework still holds today. You know, we may add something if we were to update it specifically about some of the, the riots we saw or specifically about some of the protests we saw or about the, the insurrection, the capital insurrection that we saw. We might add those facts, but I think it would be within the exact same framework. And I think we would address those in ways that you could derive from the book as it is. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of the book is that um, the framework stands outside of a specific moment in time. And now having some more incidents to, incidents to reflect on, being able to say yes, and now I can see how, if we had had this, how the outcomes, how we, how we transitioned through those moments could have been different. So thank you, Justin, for that. Thank you. Joining us today is Dr. Justin Gibney. Justin, along with Michael Ware and Chris Butler, is the author of Compassion and Conviction, where they flesh out the And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. We've been talking about uh, some of Justin's own wisdom as he's learned through his own experience and narrative of a lifetime that's been marked by learning what his convictions are and learning what objectives he wants to see accomplished and how he can partner with others. Justin, normally I start by asking our guests to share a bit of their story right at the start. But I'd love to for you to share a bit of your personal story here as we move towards wrapping up. It's amazing to me that we often see testimony growing more and more in prominence, right? People who are, are in the public eye are using their testimony and it might be a, a religious flavor or not, but are using their testimony to be understood and heard and for people to be introduced to them. I'd love for you to share a bit of your testimony with us. Sure. So I'm originally from uh, Denver, Colorado, was raised in the church uh, as the son of a PK, the, the grandson of a, a bishop in the church of uh, uh, God in Christ. You know, really growing up, you know, spent a lot of time in the in the Black Baptist Church, but also went to a, um, a charismatic church as well. So so got a, a variety, was raised in a very different in a very diverse because it was Colorado, which is a very diverse around a lot of different groups of people. And so I think I learned a lot of, I learned a lot from that and it also prepared me for what I do now. Was always very into sports, uh, ended up getting a, a football scholarship to Vanderbilt University. So I played there, studied social policy and philosophy, ended up going to Vanderbilt Law School, get a job at in Atlanta doing medical malpractice defense, but was very interested in politics at the time. So started working on a campaign for a mayor's race. The candidate I was working for ended, ends up winning. Uh, and from that campaign, I just end up managing different campaigns, doing campaign strategy, but start to notice that there was this void that a lot of the people who either I was running their campaigns or friends I knew that wanted to run for office felt like they had to 
to leave some of their their convictions behind. So my friends that were in the progressive space where, where I am felt like, you know, you can't really talk about the abortion issue. You can't really talk about the Christian sexual ethic. Some of my friends who were in more Republican spaces, this is probably um, more so during the Tea Party era, felt that they couldn't talk about some of those more compassion oriented issues, whether it be immigration, poverty in the same way that they wanted to. And so I looked at that and I'm like, why is that the case? Why would a Christian have to go into these spaces, even if there's a lot of Christians around them and not bring their compassion and their conviction with them and just saw a need for more organization for a better framework for Christians to engage, started a small organization called Crucifix and Politics with some other just with a few other politicos who were Christians. And that eventually turns into the AND campaign. One of the things I really appreciate about you sharing your story is that it's clearly a story that's had uh, opportunities and opportunities that you've taken advantage of and worked for, right? Nobody gets a football scholarship without working really hard for it. Nobody achieves a law degree without working really hard for it. And at the same time, you've turned and given so much of those resources back, right? You've, you've turned back and given or moved ahead, maybe you could say uh, paid forward your leadership skills. You've paid forward some of the connections and things that you've learned along along the way. And the reason I think it's important to point that out is that the book, Compassion and Conviction, really is a manual that gives people who don't have all those connections or who, who haven't had all those experiences steps that they too can take, right? Because it's about encouraging faithful living. It's not about making a name for oneself. It's not about, it's not a political guide of, of how to get into the, the political life and, and be recognized. It's how do I faithfully live out the gospel in my own sphere and in my own civic life where I live and, and do life around other people who don't have the exact same convictions I do, or who maybe have different uh, issues of compassion that are closer to them. How can I do this well and faithfully and fruitfully as well? So I certainly appreciate your, your willingness to educate, right. And bring some of the, the tips and the, the next steps uh, along the way for, for multiple people. I'd love to finish up with a question like this. So we have pastors and spiritual leaders who are listening in, and perhaps some of this, some of them have been stretched by this conversation. Maybe they've seen, I've been in a stretching season for the last six months, right? They want to listen, right? They want to, they want to not just defend their ideology. They want to, they want to subject it, right? They want to see like, well, what am I believing is true? And what am I believing that that isn't, but that I've been said that this is, is necessary for me to believe. So they've been, they've been subjecting that to the truth. They've been moving away from defending ideology to pursuing that, which is true and good and beautiful. They've been working really hard at this. You know, these people because you work alongside of them, right? You, you know, the people who've been stretching and have been stepping out in faith from kind of heart to heart. What would you say to pastors and spiritual leaders in their local churches from Dr. Justin Gibney? I would say stay at it, that it's, again, it's not something that you ever reach a point where you're getting it perfectly. You want to, you want to, you want to challenge yourself. You want to stay, stay vigilant. Also, I would say have courage because you're going to be in spaces where it's going to be easier not to say anything. You're going to be in spaces where taking a stand could have an impact on your professional you know, career, uh, could have an impact on a lot of different things. But I think that's just part of the Christian life, that at some point when it comes time and you're challenged that you have to step up and again, be self-sacrificial in that moment and just stand for what's right. I think too many instances, we, we don't do that. We find ways to rationalize not doing that, but be courageous, stand up for people. And, and one thing you'll find, and one thing I found, because I wasn't always, uh, I didn't always take that courageous stance, 
but people follow courage and and you're going to embolden a lot of people who you may not know were even listening to or, or considering, you know, what you're saying. You're going to embolden them if you decide to stand up and, and, and bear witness to the truth. I love that line. Courage is contagious, right? There's a sense that that sometimes leadership is that willingness to take the first step. And it's amazing who takes the second step to follow after, right? And you recognize that the first step has always been taken by Christ. As you were saying, as he led so many of these conversations and was willing to converse with so many people, certainly not in a way that gave up any of his convictions, right? That was the nature of a life that was lived of perfect faith right to the very end. But the, the confidence that he had grounded in his father is what allows any of us by the power of the Holy Spirit to take a step after him. Friends, if you are interested in finding out more about the AND campaign, you can track it down at andcampaign.org, andcampaign.org. Justin, along with Michael Ware and Chris Butler, is the author of Compassion and Conviction, published by University Press. And he also has a podcast called The Church Politics Podcast, which you can find uh, on Apple and other platforms where podcasts are found. Dr. Durr, Dr. Gibney, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here at the Wesley Seminary Podcast today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Justin, again. It's been a joy. My pleasure. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You make conversations like this possible. It's a joy to have you listening in because I get to meet interesting people like Justin and to keep conversations going with people like Dr. Durr. So it's great that you were listening in and making these conversations possible. The Wesley Seminary podcast exists to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. We trust we have done just that today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe, share it around, and let others know about the Wesley Seminary podcast. Thanks so much to our production team for making the podcast sound good and make it available and to publish it and promote it. Certainly appreciate all your work that goes into it, Heather and team as well. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you again, Dr. Gibney. Thank you, Dr. Durr. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Trust you all. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.